Welcome to Theology on Tap. Um, usually we're somewhere else. Um, for the next couple months we'll be couch surfing a bit. Um, stay tuned for December. We may find a location to do our December Theology on Tap. Um, Cheyenne and I have got to work on that. If you know a location for the December Theology on Tap, let us know. Um, starting in the new year, if you didn't hear, we will be moving to the um, Schlafly Bottle Works in Maplewood. Uh, for Theology on Tap, and if you get a chance to thank Fran Caradonna, their new CEO, who's a member here, um, she's the one who's making that space available for us, which is awesome. Um, at least read the profiles that they're doing of her as um, one of the only women to lead one of the nation's major breweries, and it's really kind of fun. Um, so Theology on Tap gets together about once a month. Uh, we're a, com a group of folks that some of us come from Episcopal congregations, some of us don't. Um, everybody's welcome in this space. Uh, I joked in the prayer a little bit, um, theology uh, as, a, as an academic discipline, actually the whole idea of like academic discipline, uh, I would argue, and a lot of scholars would argue, uh, the idea of the academy even was born in a church basement. And you can go and you can have a meal there now. The, um, St. Mary of the University Church in Oxford has a refectory, has a little restaurant uh, underneath the big university church and you can go eat there and they historians tell us that that is where um, some of the monks the Oxford was a town of monasteries and some of the monks started meeting with lay students not just young people who wanted to be monks but just lay students and the idea of the seminar the idea of the tutorial the idea of the academy at least in the English-speaking world was born at Oxford University um, became Oxford University but it grew up out of a church basement uh, so it's kind of fitting uh, that we're in a ch church basement. And it's kind of fitting that we have a big deal theologian with us. Um, so Adam Floyd just recently gave a paper at Oxford University uh, on one of his subject matter expertises, which is Augustine. Uh, so definitely if you get a chance to nerd out about Augustine with Adam Floyd, he will be here. Um, I will even let you call him Augustine. Augustine. So Episcopalians have a thing about that. but um, But... Uh, but Augustine, um, there. Uh, so to talk to talk to Adam sometime about Augustine if you get a chance. But um, we're more interested in him tonight for another subject matter expertise that he has. Uh, Adam, in addition to being a great theologian, is a good friend, and I have been with him to at least one, if not more, Star Wars movie premieres. And I'm always a little bit in awe, not just of his theological knowledge but of his level of commitment to the Star Wars franchise. <laughs> um, and so I thought, as we're getting ready for the last of the now nine of the sort of original, uh, the, there's only three, I know, but but um, of the nine, this is the last one, the ninth movie is going to be coming out. Of the Skywalker Saga. So Adam's already correcting me, so we'll let him up here soon. Um, but since that's coming out in December, I thought, what a better chance to get together than to talk about all the theological and wacky things that are going on in Star Wars that raise up real questions about spirituality and faith. And there are people out there who think of Star Wars in a very religious and spiritual way for whom that philosophy is a guiding thing. And so I thought, let's map that a little bit with the help of a theologian. Uh, so if you would help me welcome Dr. Adam Floyd. Thank you, Mike. I think it is good to begin with confession. I am only a Star Wars nerd depending on whose company I am keeping. 
Mike and I have mutual friends for whom I am but a Padawan. If you don't get that joke, your life is probably full and rich of meaning. <laughs> I have not, for instance, watched all of the Clone Wars cartoon. I know I should, but there's so many other things to watch. I haven't watched any of Rebels, but I've read Wikipedia pages about them. <laughs> I, I, I know spoiler things that I won't say now to prove that I know things because it might hurt others and, you know, I wouldn't want to do that. When Mike asked me to talk about Star Wars, I immediately said yes, and, there, and then very quickly thought, oh, shoot. There's so much I, we could go into, you know, the nature of the Force, this idea of a dark side and a light side, uh, the idea that uh, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter, stuff like that. But when I sat down this week to think about what I really wanted to talk about, and really when I started putting together my PowerPoint, which is at home, <laughs> I came back to where it sort of all started for George Lucas, which is the hero's journey. As many of you probably know, and if you don't, again, you probably have very rich, compelling lives, uh, George Lucas based his original version of Star Wars around the idea of the monomyth or the hero's journey as outlined by a scholar by the name of Joseph Campbell in the middle of the 20th century. And Campbell had this idea that going back to Babylonian and to Egyptian and to Jewish and Christian and Hindu and Buddhist and all of these different types of world mythologies, you had common stories that were told in different versions. And one of these is the hero's journey. And for Star Wars, that's centered and. I should caveat real quick. I'm going to be focusing primarily on the original trilogy. If you came here to hear about the prequels, you can leave now. <laughs> For many reasons. Uh, but centered around Luke Skywalker. And as you can see on my PowerPoint, we have a great image of wide-eyed Luke on his home planet, Tatooine, gazing out into the evening sky, dreaming of adventure and a life beyond his uh, uncle and aunt's moisture farm. You know, we, we've all been there. Um, we see him with Obi-Wan Kenobi instructing him in the ways of the Force. We see him in The Empire Strikes Back, no, spoiler, sorry, uh, being told by Darth Vader that he is in fact his father and yelling no and having to deal with all of that. And what this beautiful slide represents is Luke's version of the hero's journey. The hero is called out from a sort of normal, almost meaningless or uh, mundane existence and as Obi-Wan says, he takes a step into a greater world. He is brought, or she, is brought into, or they, is brought into a larger 
sometimes more fantastical, sometimes magical, think Harry Potter for another fandom universe. And encountering that, they go through a series of trials, right? Normally they will lose the mentor, they will face some form of evil, they will have to overcome something external or something internal or both, and then they return to where they come from, a changed person, and uh, bestow some sort of benefit upon their home world. Such as when Luke tells Han, you know I was born here, you know you're going to die here. Except it doesn't happen. So I started thinking about this hero's journey and what to make of it for a conversation in theology on tap. And one of the ways in which hero's journeys are so powerful is that they tell us something about what we value. They communicate to us and reflect back to us our ambitions of what an ideal human life looks like. The very understanding of what heroism entails tells us something about the things we fear, the things we love, the things we value. And so, This is true for Christians and for Christian faith as well as any faith or no faith. What does it mean as Christians to live an idealized life? What does the hero's journey look like from a Christian theological lens. What is the wider world into which we move through Christian faith? What are the struggles, the opponents, the obstacles, dare I say the evils, that we encounter? And what does it look like for a fully matured Christian disciple to have gone through that cycle and come back to the community and offer something. This is a very actually common theme within Christian history. We don't call them Jedis, we don't call them heroes, we call them saints. And they have their own formulas Right? If you ever spend enough time reading saints' lives, you'll suddenly call shenanigans on the whole enterprise <laughs> and say, wait a second, what's going on with Bertha over here looks a heck of a lot of what went along with Julian over here and very similar to what David engages. I, I'm beginning to think these might not be entirely on the up and up. Right? But, but of course, like hero stories, these accounts of saints aren't there to tell us mere facts. They're there to tell us something more, something better, 
something true about what is possible, about what it means to live a life of faith, of fidelity, of hope, and of love. And I think Star Wars and the way it follows Luke and the uh, larger heroes around him kind of challenges us to think about two ways in which Christian heroism can be described. And it all has to do with how we engage evil. Cheers. I'm done. Let's go. No. Next slide, please. Uh, so what you have here is a beautiful, just heartbreaking image of Luke holding his father as he dies. The helmet has been removed. You can see the frail old man inside, or actually going by the... Uh, um, chronology, the frail middle-aged man who has had a hard life, apparently. Um, that's true. Fair. I, I mean, fair. I can't, I, can't, I can't fault him for that. Um, if, if I get all my limbs chopped off by my best friend, may I look as good. But what we have in this image, I think, of Luke holding his father is the first option for Christians' heroic engagement with evil, redemption. That Luke never gives up on Vader. Never gives up on his father, even when his father says he should. And that moment when Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, sees the Emperor electrocuting his son, and you see that internal struggle looking back and forth, you know what's going to happen. Because the very fact that he's divided means that there's something in there that can't stand to see his son suffer like this. And of course he picks up the Emperor, throws him in the down the well, and in December we'll find out something about that, I think. But that's another issue. Another issue. The message of redemption says that the way to face evil is to never forget, in Christian language, the image of God in those whom we oppose. To never forget the humanity perhaps the innate goodness of those who do the evil in this world. And so the hero's work, you'll notice Luke goes off as the hero from all the others in Return of the Jedi. His project is one of redemption. But let's not forget 
that Luke is joining a rebellion. And while he never gives up hope for Vader, Grand Moff Tarkin is another issue. Right? The Emperor is another issue. All the stormtroopers on the Death Star, both of them, are another issue. So, congruent, or perhaps incongruent, with this redemption story is a story of rebellion and revolution. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean taking up arms against tyranny, against evil. And Luke begins his hero's journey dreaming of joining that rebellion. And he doesn't meet up with them, and then Obi-Wan says, oh, actually, that's not the real way. The real way is to try to save your father. No, he joins them, he gets in an X-Wing, and he blows the crap out of the Death Star. And we all shout hooray. So, oh, sorry, third slide. <laughs> you have a Star Destroyer coming in on the second Death Star. Uh, you've got the X-Wings in formation coming in to attack the first Death Star. And I think right over here you might have the Battle of Hoth. So just picture that. So the hero's journey in Star Wars involves military might. Involves taking up force against imperial tyranny. And we also sort of have stories of this in the Christian tradition. It's not about actually taking up weapons. But I think the martyrs have a similar outlook. What I mean is, in comparison to redemption, if you read the texts that talk about the early Christian martyrs, and even martyrs throughout uh, the Reformation and other periods, uh, they're not really concerned about redeeming the empire. In fact, they do believe that a mighty force is going to take it out. It's just going to be God's force. And that the power of this world, the empires of this world, are going to come crumbling down. And they are not interested in saying, you know, I think under it the emperor is really a good guy. They're, they're just not, in, they've completely forsworn any hope of redemption in their opponents. So, the hero's journey in Star Wars. I think we have these two options that sort of map on to the options of the Christian life. Do we work for the redemption of those who do evil? Or do we condemn them? 
Does context change that? Are there times when we can say, yes, we need to redeem X group of people or X person, and we need to be committed to their salvation as it is tied up in ours? Or are there other times where perhaps we need to take up arms even? Or at the very least, proclaim God's judgment on the evils of this world. To rebel rather than redeem. I think both are alive and well in our Christian tradition. And I think part of the difficulty of the ethical life of Christians is learning how to balance that. The times to simply speak out and say no, no compromise. And the other times to say we will redeem. Luckily, the force will guide us. (laughs) Adam, thanks. And I'll... I'll invite Adam and his slideshow back up at the end uh, to do some Q&A. Um, those of you who've been to Theology on Tap know before we do Q&A, we talk at our tables. So you've got some topics. Um, I'm going to ask Silas and Tyler to join the back table back there so you've got more people. So three questions. Uh, Star Wars is based on the classic hero's journey, namely that of Luke Skywalker, from wide-eyed farm boy to Jedi Master. What, for you, defines a hero? Why? One key narrative arc of Star Wars is the redemption of Darth Vader slash Anakin Skywalker. Luke never gives up hope that there's some good left in Vader, even when Vader himself denies it. What are Darth Vader, what, who are the Darth Vaders in your world? And can you still imagine them being redeemed? And then three, Star Wars tells the story of a military rebellion being waged against an evil empire. While on the individual level, Luke is committed to redeeming his father, the rebellion sees no option but violence against the empire at large. At what point does violence become the only practical option, indeed even an ethical imperative, for those fighting for freedom? Solve all of that in the next 15 to 20 minutes, and we'll come back together. I'm going to bring us back together as a big group. I'm going to ask Adam to come up. You may have noticed that as Episcopalians, we can't help but find liturgy. Um, And so right underneath, and if you're Episcopalian, if you grew up in an Episcopal church, you will get this anyway. But right underneath the um, theology on tap has the word faith. I don't know why that's from the last title, but uh, there's a a responsorial. So may the force be with you. And with your spirit. Yeah, and with thy spirit. That works too. Um, I just want to ask you all, I'll ask Adam a couple questions, but I want to ask just for some names that got thrown out there as heroes. Did you name any heroes? Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is a pretty relevant Christian figure, especially when you get into that third question too, right? What other names got thrown out there? I am totally fangirling Polly Murray these days. Um, I mentioned her in an Easter sermon a couple of years back. Uh, first African-American woman Episcopal priest. Also, when she was one of the first women graduates of the Howard Law School, um, in her thesis to graduate, wrote the argument that became the decision, like the deciding legal argument for Brown v. Board of Education. She's this incredible, she's been sainted in the Episcopal Church now. Worth your time as heroes go. Any other names that came up? 
She also has a college named after her now at Yale. Uh, they took it away from a slaveholder um, southerner and gave it to Polly Murray, which gold star for Yale on that one. I don't give that many gold stars to Yale, but that, they did well there. <laughs> other names? Any other names? Autumn Peltier. Autumn Peltier. Tell me about Autumn Peltier. She's, oh, we said Greta. Indigenous teenage activist. Yeah, who is a water warrior. Yeah. <laughs> and she's been active, um, an activist for water uh, purity and, and protection. And she's just brilliant. She just actually is at the UN right now. And, That's uh, awesome. That's she's so amazing. Yeah, Greta is very polarizing figure too. You know. Um, Help me with the young woman's name, too, that Greta's working alongside. Autumn? Autumn Peltier. Autumn Peltier. Yeah, there's a lot of debate about what makes a hero, just right there. Um, others? What about um, that third question about violence? How many of you did not get there? Oh, you all got there. So we tell me. There. You, sol you solved it? <laughs> Who solved it? Um, yeah, I joked about solving it. This is like, Adam is, is theology, I wouldn't say 101, like 201-ing you. Like, this is one of the arguments that there's a great, if you want to get, like, history of theology of the last century, there's a great set of essays by uh, Reinhold Niebuhr and his brother Richard Niebuhr mm -hmm. that take two sides on this. Um, if you want to, like, nerd out about it, they're, they're pretty fun. What'd you come down on? Violence ever okay? I'm going to use that to flip it over to Adam. Fine. So, Adam, let's talk about violence for a second. Um, your term violence, I, my goal, by the way, um, for Theology on Tap in, in, as we move forward is that part of my role in this part is to pretend that I'm Krista Tippett and ask just really good questions. So, you use this word violence, and that's actually a word that has come up with some ethical difficulty yeah. here in St. Louis. Yeah. Because one of the things that gets talked about in our recent history in St. Louis is about um, after uh, Michael Brown's death, after the decision not to indict uh, his murderer, after the decision around Stockley, there was a lot of property damage. Mm -hmm. And it would regularly be covered as like violence in the streets. And protesters here in St. Louis would say, wait a second, what is the distinction? Like, we would say violence is against bodies mm -hmm. and property destruction is an economic question. So how would you theologically make some sense about when you say violence in this question or when you talk about violence, go to theology, go to Star Wars, but how would you make sense? Is there a distinction between property destruction and violence against people for you, theologically? Yes. 
Um, I, I would say this, you're right to complexify that. That's part of the conversation we had at our table. I'm currently teaching a class at Eden on violence and theology in Christian history, where we spent several weeks just going over this question and intentionally sort of getting nowhere in order to leave it ambiguous so that we can have the largest uh, conceptual palette to work with. And so that when a particular issue comes up, we can clarify, well, we're talking about violence in this sense, but it doesn't prevent us from using it to describe other things that might be violent as well. I think the difficulty that comes up with issues around protests, uh, whether it be the Stockley verdict or the shooting of Mike Brown or any number of other tragedies, uh, uh, is that it's the PR aspect of it. Right, because you don't have the privilege of ideological purity in trying to define violence. Because you can't say, well, yes, it is violence, but it is a different sort of violence than this violence. And so we have a first-order violence and a second-order violence. And while we would never do second-order violence, in certain cases, first-order violence is quite appropriate and necessary. And that's great, but it doesn't play well on Twitter or on the evening news. And uh, we work in... We, we, so one of the things that I try to do in my teaching is make that a space where we can explore those complexities without having to reduce it. But I do think, uh, just the way you, you asked that final question, is there a difference between violence against property and violence on bodies? Absolutely. But I don't think it's necessarily whether they're violence, right? And I think we have to be able to think in more complex terms. Uh, not more complex terms than what you were saying, but more complex terms than we normally do in the Twitterverse or Twitter sphere or whatever it is. I don't know. I'm still on email. I think that's neat. Um, so I would say, as a Christian, Jesus called me to love my neighbor, not necessarily my neighbor's property. And while some forms of neighborly love might require the respect of that person's property. Some forms of neighborly love do not. And that's part of the wrestling out of that complexity, I think. Yeah, I, I bring that into, I mean, it's one thing to talk about it in the form of protests, like in the Star Wars saga, you've got violence against property, but you've also got violence against the weapon that can cause such mass destruction, right? Like, but it brings you into that question of collateral damage. Yeah. You brought in the... Yeah. Uh, the stormtroopers and all of the, the folks, the Grand Moff Tarkins, the folks that get killed alongside the Death Star. But there's no question that destroying the Death Star in that universe saved lives. More lives than it lost. But it, but it gets you into that classical yeah. question that, and I, I brought up the Niebuhrs, but I, one of the, you know, Barack Obama very famously is a fan of Reinhold Niebuhr, mm, the oh, pragmatist, yeah. the just war guy. And Barack Obama had to you know, in our name, in our, you know, like as, as um, U.S. citizens, waged campaigns with thrones and things that involved collateral damage. So it, it does complexify pretty quickly. Um, and it becomes, you know, it becomes this, there are times when as St. Louisans, we can say, well, violence in our streets, but then 
on the other side, you know, it, it just gets complicated fast. Yeah. Where would you say that you settled, like, if you were going to pick between a, it, the other the other theologian that I know that did some really interesting work on this was Cohn. Oh, yeah. When he talks about the distinction between MLK and Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where as a theologian would you put your weight or is it really contextual? Are you more on the, or, or, or do you think that the binary serves us? <laughs> I th- hope you all have a great night. <laughs> no, I think, um, when I think of the sort of spectrum of Martin Luther King and um, Malcolm X, it immediately makes me think about, obviously, issues of race justice, ra- racial justice. Yeah. And one of my ways of dealing with that complexity is to try to develop a discipline of not taking a side on it and of being able to listen to the different voices, have an awareness of where my whiteness is being triggered, uh, and be able to learn a bit about what my assumptions are that might want me to too easily feel comfortable with certain versions of Martin Luther King and more antagonistic to certain versions of Malcolm X. Uh, But if we're doing let's say we're, we're doing those as a, um, as a shorthand for the resistance versus redemption, the rebellion versus redemption ex- uh, distinction. I was thinking when listening to uh, the folks at my table uh, that ideally it's you're not choosing and we are performing both at the same time, depending on the particular situation we find ourselves in. Um, uh, Beth made this great connection to Bishop Curry and the uh, text about kick off the dust from your feet if they don't welcome you, but also when Nicodemus came at night, he didn't say, no, sorry, you had your chance. So working for redemption but not letting that get in the way of your resistance and working for resistance, but not letting that help you dehumanize your opponents. So there's times we need to hear from both sides, I think. I want to open it up for other questions. I'm going to do one that came from my table since you quoted Beth. I'm going to quote <laughs> Cheyenne. Um, Cheyenne pointed out um, from our table that a lot of times when we get into Star Wars, we start start talking about like canon, yeah, what's yeah, canon, yeah, and what's yeah. apocryphal. We and there's all these borrowed words, right, from tradition. Yeah. Um, but one of the most compelling scriptural arguments that I have heard lately, I mean, this this canon, right? Like what actually ends up in the Bible and what does not. That's we, we talk about the canon of scripture and apocrypha. Well, Episcopalians have the Apocrypha, and other Protestants may or may not, depending on what flavor they come from. Methodists do, don't they? No! You got rid of that. Wow. Sorry for you. Um, but, um, but one of the most interesting arguments I've heard lately is you also have sort of the canon within the canon. Yeah. 
right? Like you've got, and, and that can be taken on an individual level, like what are the stories that speak to you? What are the, the pieces of scripture that really kind of help you knit your understanding of faith? Um, and I think that that's an interesting one to map with your first question about the hero's journey. Like, I would ask you, for you, what are the stories, what are the, you, you sort of hinted at it, but whether it's from the Bible or from Christian tradition, what are some of the hero's journeys that you find really compelling as you knit together your sense of what the Christian faith means? For me. For you. Okay. Yeah. Um, I love the idea of the canon inside a canon. The idea that even though we can say, I believe in the Bible, and the Bible is, is awesome and right and authoritative, none of us takes every single verse with equal weight as we do every other verse. It would be a very, very long time parsing out any question if we did. Uh, but we all have specific passages or themes that we highlight as key for interpreting the whole. The one that over the last few years has really come up for me is Acts 10. Acts, I, I think that's right. Um, and Acts 10, or whatever chapter it is I'm thinking of, is the one in which Peter is told to go and see Cornelius and baptize his household. And, and Peter says, Lord, you're crazy. Cornelius is a, is a Gentile. And he has this dream and... Uh, God lets down this, this blanket with all this food on it, but none of it's kosher. And he says, Peter, take it up and eat. And Peter goes, no, you're testing me. I'm a good Jew. I'm not going to eat that. And he goes around. I said, eat it. No, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And then he gets up and he knows that uh, it's God's will that he goes. And for me, that is something that is echoed throughout different parts of Scripture. And that's just, Beth, are you good? Okay, just checking. Okay. Uh, are you, you going to pass out? Okay. Um, just for me, what that represents is that the movement of Scripture, the narrative of Scripture, is one of pushing beyond boundaries that we thought God was making uh, and to draw that circle wider. So that's that's me. That's 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 my canon within the canon. Um, question. Yeah. Random. Something that came to mind for me this morning was from the baptismal church. Yeah. When you persevere and resist it, mm -hmm. and I think back to one of my college professors who talked about Saint George slaying the dragon, saying, "Didn't you used to." So, I don't know if this is going to answer your question, but this is what comes to my mind. How many of you found the plot of the prequels difficult to follow? Okay. 
why are we suddenly, this is Star Wars, why do we have trade negotiations starting it out, and what's going on here? Wait, are the robots on our side or not? Wait, the stormtroopers, but aren't they bad, but they seem good, and they're fighting with, I'm so confused. One part of my answer is, a dragon is clearly a dragon. Most evils don't come at us as dragons. Now, I would argue there are some that are pretty dragonous, and I'm not sure why others aren't seeing it, but that's another issue. But evil is complex, and it's, the world is complex, and it can be hard to parse out what's evil and what's just not as good as it should be. And that leads to my second point, which is the Reinhold Niebuhr in me and the Augustine in me, which is... It's hard sometimes to easily identify sin, I mean evil, because we live in a fallen world. And there is no pure good that simply exists against which evil can be but a foil. But we all have to be mindful and on guard against the evil we are all constantly complicit in. And that's a lot harder. Uh, what they didn't tell you is St. George had a business breeding dragons. <laughs> he was economically connected to this. Yeah, sorry. Or his uncle did. Or his uncle did. Uh, so I would turn that a little bit yeah. with Star Wars. It, it, for me, and, and it gets to a theological question, but one of the most compelling images forever in Star Wars is the first time Luke sees the lightsaber. Yeah. Right? And he sort of has this realization that, like, oh, like, this world is bigger. Yeah. Like, there's, there's something alive and magical. I, there's a Canadian ethicist theologian that gets quoted for this, and I'm not sure if he originated it, but there's this question about, like, how we live in a secular age. Um, Charles Taylor's the yeah. name of the guy. And, and, um, and one of the things that gets talked about is, and, and it gets into like why we're so interested in Star Wars type stories and Harry Potter type stuff and vampires and but the the way that it gets talked about is this question of like the reenchantment yeah, yeah. of our secu of our secular world and I think that that Luke Skywalker seeing the lightsaber is just like this classical yeah. image of like oh the world can be enchanted so for you like what are the moments of enchantment and and how can people of faith be involved in reenchantment. What does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's all about the force. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, what's Han's line? All I know is there's no all-encompassing force that dictates my destiny. <laughs> and ancient religions and hokey weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side. But he's doing this while Luke, who is open to it, uh, has the blast shield down and is, has that floating ball thing that's shoo shooting at him and he's trying to hit it. And he gets so excited. I did it! I did it! And like, dude, okay, chill out. Chill out. Um, but those moments of the young Luke discovering this wider world, the moments in Empire where he's training with Yoda and he suddenly realizes it's, it's not easy. This is going to take a lot of me to live into this world. And 
that moment in Jedi where he just walks in and is all black and you're just like, oh, good Lord, he turned into a badass. <laughs> Those moments of re-enchantment are all about him becoming attuned to the Force. And I may never be able to summon something to me from across the room. May never, may. But I can be equally attuned to the power that pervades our world. And I think one thing that Episcopalians have going for them is a deep sacramentality that says that the mundane things of this world are not simply what you see, taste, and touch, but they are vehicles for the power and grace of God. And so I think sacramental practice and sacramental mentality cultivation is how we as Christians re-enchant the world for ourselves and others. No, 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 my eyes cross, so. Yes, sorry. Seeing God in the world around us isn't something you learn when you hear one sermon and you go, oh, God's around us. Why didn't anyone tell me? And then something's good. It's a discipline we cultivate. And scripture and the regular reading and hearing of scripture helps us sink into that way of viewing things. And that makes sense. We have to unlearn the people. Yeah. Yeah. as well, that teach us about quiet, and, and you know, I would say Episcopalians are lucky, but also I would count one of the mystics being John Wesley. You know, that, that there is a, a certain sense of the holy uh, when you say that your heart was strangely moved, that somehow yeah. maps a warm, heart strangely warm, see I'm not a Methodist, but um, <laughs> heart strangely warm that maps to uh, Luke Skywalker as well. Adam's a Methodist, if you can catch that. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> Um, friends, I'm gonna. I was about to say the same thing that Mike was saying in a different way. We are a 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I would I would actually one of the friendships so when we go back to Hero's Journeys, one of the friendships that I discovered recently, um, Mary Oliver, big deal poet, and sorta of, she's sorta of agnostic. She's definitely not an Episcopalian. <laughs> but she dedicated one of her books to the Episcopal Bishop of Massachusetts and brother of the Order of St. John the Evangelist, Tom Shaw. So I think that there's a possibility for Episcopalians, and, and I'd say really Christians writ large, of sort of befriending uh, those who are attuned to the wider, um, the bigger, the deeper, whether they map in our tradition, a different tradition, or they're out there, you know, like Mary Oliver, walking in the pre-dawn light and, and listening to the loons, <laughs> the literal loons. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Kathleen. Barbara Brown Taylor. Yeah. She's right in the middle of all of that. Yeah, and still an Episcopal priest. Well, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but what do you, that, that question of the mystics, um, I think, and, and Lucas, in the original trilogy, before he went into Metachlorians and all that nonsense, um, like there was something at, at happening at that period too that predates Lucas, but that America was getting really fascinated with so-called Eastern religions, with Buddhism, with Hinduism, with traditions that sort of never lost their mysticism, um, and especially when they got imported to this continent, really got attached to that sort of mystical meditative energy. Um, there's something about that that even in the way that they dress yeah. the Jedi yeah. gets sort of mapped. For sure. I don't know, I want to give you the last word. Um, and I want to ask you specifically uh, about Star Wars. From a theological angle, what would be the most satisfying uh, storylines, if you were going to predict them, for the December movie? Like, what, what would tie things up in a way that would fuel your theology classes? Predict it. Because we're probably going to go see this together, so I want to know what the, like, elbow you for. God, I don't know. Um, like, all the thoughts I can think about satisfying conclusions are not theological at all. <laughs> but, I will say, it's not a particular outcome that I'm looking for, but I'm looking for what the outcome will be about this relationship between Ray and Kylo Ren. Because... You, the, so many things have been mentioned and dropped and not brought back or then invented again in the saga, but the one thing that connects the prequels on through this one is the idea of bringing balance to the Force. And so I'm curious, one, if that's where they're going to go somehow, and if so, what does that look like for this mythology? What does balance in the Force look like in the figures of Rey and Kylo Ren that have this deep connection already? Yeah. I'll say, I told you I'd give you the last word that I'm not, but um, for me, the, the piece that, and it really gets into the, the, the prequels versus the, the original movies, 
the original movies seemed much more comfortable with mystery yeah. than the prequels. Yeah. And so I wonder if what will be satisfying is if they're able to tie some things up, but if they're able to keep room for mystery yeah. in that last uh, film. I'd agree with that. Yeah. All right. Um, next month, we will be skipping Theology Untapped because the first Tuesday of the month is the St. Louis City Walkabout. Uh, the Episcopal Diocese, if you're not Episcopalian, apologies, we're going to skip Theology Untapped, but um, the Episcopal Diocese is getting ready to elect our next bishop uh, next month now, which is sort of crazy. We've been at this for a while. Um, the candidates were just announced on Sunday. Uh, all three of the candidates, and presumably anybody else who gets added as a candidate, because there's a funny, very democratic process <laughs> that happens between now and then, um, but they will be at walkabouts. And so you're invited to all of them, but the first Tuesday of November they picked to be the walkabout at Trinity in the Central West End. As of tonight, they're saying the tentative start time is 6 p.m., so I can't tell you whether it's 6 p.m., if it'll be 6.30 or what it'll be. Um, but if you'd like to hear from the candidates for the next bishop, uh, you, that'll go out on our socials and everything for Theology on Tap, um, that we won't be having Theology on Tap because it's really important for the Episcopalians in the room to get to hear from the folks who might be the next bishop and then tell the folks that have been democratically elected as your electors who they who you think you should vote for. Um, all the clergy and then a group of lay folk from the diocese have a vote from the various parishes. You can look on our website if you want all the names. If you'd like to know about the upcoming Theology on Taps and you didn't get a chance to sign up, um, the sign-up sheet is the email list. Um, we send about one email a month. We try not to spam folks. Um, follow us on socials as well. We do plan to have a Theology on Tap in December. Usually that's been a sort of trivia um, around Advent and Christmas. If you'd like to hear Adam Ploidigan on a totally different topic, which is not yet totally determined, right? We're doing something about history. Oh, yeah. Um, but Adam will be here, hopefully not down here, but he'll be here at Holy Communion. Um, hopefully by then we will be back into our regular configuration and he'll be in our Mitchell Parish Hall. But on a Sunday morning, the 1st of December at 9.15 a.m., Adam will be back to do our forum here at Holy Communion. Um, so you can look forward to hearing from Adam again if you would like to. Less Star Wars. Less Star Wars, but... Oh, yes. <laughs> huh? Will you all join me in thanking Adam Floyd?